Welcome back to The Landscape, your show about America's public lands. I'm Kate Gretzinger in Bluff, Utah. And I'm Aaron Weiss at the Center for Western Priorities in Denver, Colorado. Today we're talking to author Laura J. Martin about the history of ecological restoration in the United States. Martin has a new book coming out on May 17th with the wonderful name Wild by Design. It covers the early conservation movement in the U.S. from a slightly different angle than our listeners may be used to hearing, and we're excited to get into it with her. But before we jump into that interview with Laura, let's do the news. This week, we saw congressional gridlock on full display when the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee deadlocked on a popular bill that would protect around 400,000 acres of public lands in Colorado. It's called the CORE Act. The legislation's already passed the House. It was led by Congressman Joe Neguse, who we had on the podcast talking about the CORE Act back in, uh, in 2019. One reason that it is so amazing that this bill couldn't even make it all the way out of committee in the Senate is that it has incredibly broad support among Coloradans. According to the 2020 Conservation in the West poll from Colorado College, around 70% of Colorado voters support the CORE Act. This year's version of that poll showed almost 90% of Colorado voters support creating new protected areas writ large. Now, the bill could still come up for a vote in the Senate if Majority Leader Chuck Schumer brings it up on the floor. But that's kind of a long shot, and they need every Democrat to vote for it to get it over the finish line. Alternatively, Colorado Senators Michael Bennett and John Hickenlooper could work with President Biden to protect public lands in Colorado using the Antiquities Act. And they may not be the only ones who have to do that to get any land protected. Republicans on the Senate committee basically said there's no chance they're going to vote for any public land protections as long as we're seeing high gas prices, making it much harder to pass conservation legislation. For more info on why eschewing conservation won't help bring high gas prices down, go back and listen to our episode with Jesse Prentice-Dunn and Jenny Rowland, as well as our episode with Brad Handler. It was interesting watching this markup in in the Senate this week. Uh, You had another bill as well from Martin Heinrich, senator from New Mexico, that would protect public lands in New Mexico, uh, including a mineral withdrawal there. And Senator John Barrasso from Wyoming was very clear. He just wouldn't support anything that would, would include future, uh, future mineral withdrawals. And Senator Heinrich pointed out the hypocrisy there that Senator Barrasso had just recently supported a bill that in fact did include a mineral withdrawal in Wyoming, but Barrasso just doesn't want to take potential acres off the table in New Mexico or Colorado, even though there is no... Uh, significant oil and gas development to speak of in the Thompson Divide, which is one of the key areas that would be protected under the CORE Act. It really does underscore the challenge uh, of getting any conservation measures through Congress, which is, at least on the Senate side, effectively broken. Uh, When uh, a bill like this winds up in a 10-10 tie, it has an incredibly... uh, tough road ahead. And so, yeah, you, you, you couldn't have an Antiquities Act protection that takes the whole CORE Act and just turns that into a national monument. Uh, cl- clearly, the CORE Act is a bunch of different areas, but parts of it certainly would count as objects of scientific and historical importance to be protected with the Antiquities Act. Camp Hale, for example, which is the centerpiece of the CORE Act. The Thompson Divide certainly is a landscape that is a cohesive landscape, as we heard John Leshy 
talk about uh, during our our last episode. Those kinds of protections are absolutely what the Antiquities Act is there for. So as it becomes clearer uh, that a legislative path forward is pretty darn narrow at this point, that is exactly why the Antiquities Act exists. And I suspect we will see some more talk about that here going forward uh, if, in fact, the Core Act does not make it any further than this. All right, uh, off my soapbox there. One more piece of news before we jump into the interview. The comment period for the Greater Chaco Area Drilling Withdrawal closes on Friday. Uh, This is that comment period uh, for a proposal that would close off a 10-mile buffer area around Chaco Culture National Historic Park, protecting it from drilling for the next 20 years. Archaeology Southwest just this week released a great video on why that protection is the right thing to do. It features a number of tribal leaders who support that plan. Go give that video a watch. We will link to it in the show notes. Laura, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Kate. I'm excited to talk today. Awesome. Me too. I uh, will admit that I speed read your book over the past couple of days and um, it was incredibly easy to read and just honestly breezed by. It was a, it was a great read. So I'm going to kick off with some questions here and I just want to talk about the intro. You tell this amazing story about whooping crane, I guess, restoration, basically bringing these birds back from the brink of extinction, including like these amazingly creative methods, like teaching them to migrate by by getting them to follow planes. And like, hu- there's a great picture of humans d- with like giant sheets on um, dressed up as cranes. And then, of course, there's the guy who slept with the crane and essentially acted like her, um, the crane's mate for a while and basically dedicated his life to this crane. It's just a great story. Um, and I'm curious why you decide why you picked that story to kick off your book. Yeah, so I begin the book with the story of, of George Archibald, who was a um, restoration ecologist who was looking to try and save the endangered whooping cranes. And as, as you recounted, he go, he went to great lengths to do this. He stayed, he lived in the same shelter as the female whooping crane that he was attempting to get to um, produce a fertile egg. He acted, cranes, um, cranes pair for, um, they, they have, they're very committed to the, the partner that they choose. And so Archibald was attempting to woo and then uh, create a pair bond with this with this other crane, and it took just this. I, it took this incredible amount of effort from multiple people to try and get just one whooping crane to to successfully create one egg. And so I start the book with this anecdote because it shows two different things. It first shows just how much dedication and work is involved in ecological restoration and in the decision to try and save just one species from the brink of extinction. And second, it really highlights a tension that I'm looking at in the book between wildness and human intervention or wildness and design. And so the 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 saving of the endangered whooping crane really gets at this 
this tension in trying to bring back a wild species from the brink of extinction while also trying to intervene just just enough that the species learns to survive by itself without it imprinting on humans. And so as the humans involved in this project go to great lengths to disguise the fact that they're humans. They dress up as cranes. They pretend that they're either mates of cranes or the parents of the, the baby whoopers, as they're called. And they attempt to care for these species, but not as humans. They're, they're acting as another species. And so the... I then kind of broaden out in the introduction to think about how restoration ecologists and land managers across the United States seek to intervene in ecosystems and landscapes while also constraining that intervention and even sometimes hiding that intervention. And I, I define ecological restoration as this attempt to aid species or help ecosystems recover while also respecting the autonomy of non-human species and processes. That's a, that's a great bridge to my next question, which is um, about these different groups that you start the book with, um, the American Bison Society and the Wildflower Pres Preservation Society. These are sort of some very early, like almost proto-environmental groups. Um, and I'm curious how you would define those groups. Um, were they restorationists? Were they preservationists or conservationists? And could you also just sort of explain how those three differ? Yeah, sure. So today, ecological restoration is the most widespread and important mode of environmental management in the world. There's governments and public and private organizations spending billions of dollars per year on restoration. And uh, just recently, the UN declared this to be the decade on ecosystem restoration. But restoration was not always a, a popular practice or even a, a, an, an idea that existed. In the early 20th century, there were two dominant modes of environmental management in the United States. As you mentioned, conservation and preservation. And preservationists were interested in kind of more of a hands-off model of management where areas were set aside, generally for aesthetic reasons rather than species protection. The, the idea of species protection came later in the, in the 20th century. But areas set aside for, for the use of tourists and recreational use. And then there was the idea, the kind of progressive era idea of natural resources conservation, which was is what we would now call a wise use model. With conservation, co conservation advocates were interested in figuring out how to use scientific ideas to manage economically important species like Douglas fir or salmon uh, in the West. And the difference, so I, I argue in the book that Early restorationists are defining themselves in contrast to both preservation and conservation. 
and arguing for a third way that is distinct from these two other more dominant modes of, of management. And I start the book thinking about the American Bison Society and the Wildflower Preservation Society, two organizations that both predate the rise of scientific ecology. Scientific ecology in the United States is first becomes a thing in the 19-teens, but doesn't really take off until after World War II. So there were other ways of thinking about land management before the rise of ecology. Ag agricultural science and forestry were two more influential types of science that influenced land management. Something that's different about the American Bison Society and the Wildflower, Conservation, the Wildflower Preservation Society than organizations today is that they were operating in a political system where the federal government really did not perform much land management. There were there was the Bureau of Biological Survey, which was tasked essentially with killing predators, ranging from iconic predators like wolves and coyotes to less, lesser known predators like owls. And beyond that, there was the U.S. Forest Service, of course, kind of doing this economic management of forestry resources. But there wasn't a, a federal agency or organization that was really working on the management of, not, of species that were not of commercial importance. And so organizations like the American Bison Society and the Wildflower Preservation Society emerged in part to fill this gap and to provide volunteers and scientific expertise for respectively the, the restoration of bison and the protection of native plant species that were of aesthetic value to the, the botanists who first founded these native plant organizations. Cool, cool. So this question is sort of selfishly related to our work, but when did this idea of preserving land sort of intersect with um, ecological restoration work and the idea that you can't re restore a species without protecting its habitat, essentially. So restoration was first thought of, I would argue, as a, an activity for specifically for preserved lands and protected lands. So in the, in the third chapter of the book, I uncover how scientists in the ecological the early ecological society of america were advocating for land preservation of a new type they were saying that rather than doing what the forest service was doing in the realm of conservation or what the national park service was doing in terms of preservation the ecological society of america and other organizations should think about a new type of preserved area, one that would be set aside for the study and protection of 
all species and one that would preserve you know, ecological conditions. And this is where there starts to be a lot of you know, cross-pollination and, and slippage between the idea of restoration and preservation. And restorationists at this point in the 1920s and 1930s were thinking about acquiring land and restoring it to a historical baseline so that it could then manage itself or restore itself in perpetuity as a protected area. And one thing I'm interested in, I'm, I'm hoping that this book sparks a conversation about how restoration ecology, how restoration projects can move beyond protected areas and also encompass working landscapes and places where people live and to really think about how ecological restoration can bridge these different land uses. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I actually have been thinking about that too, in relation to your book and I don't want to get too far away from the text of the book itself, but um, we do a lot of work on this goal to preserve 30% of the U S by 2030. Um, and of course, what does preserve mean? Um, and that's where I think this creative thinking that ecological restorationists have been doing could be really interesting. And like, what do we count as conserved or preserved? And um, yeah, I mean, I think that restoration like will have to be a part of that. So um, this book is a great, I found it to be a really great resource for thinking through that, what that could look like. But I do want to get back to the to what you actually wrote about, um, and specifically the you referenced this earlier, but the sort of evolution of ecological sciences after and during World War Two. Well, after World War Two, during the nuclear age, can you talk about how nuclear testing sort of led to the discovery of ecology and ecosystems? Yeah, I think I think this is one of the the aspects of the book that people find really surprising. So it's it's little remembered today, but the US Atomic Energy Commission was actually the main funder of ecological research from the beginning of World War II until really the mid-1970s when the National Science Foundation eclipses it. And so you, so you might ask why did the Manhattan Project and the Atomic Energy Commission care about the obscure discipline of studying the relationships between other species. And the answer is that they had no idea what was going to happen to radioisotopes released into the environment through nuclear weapons production and detonation. And so the Atomic Energy Commission actually hires contracts ecologists to go to the colonized Marshall Islands in the 1940s in order to see whether radioisotopes were persisting in the environment after detonating hundreds of nuclear weapons there. And I argue in the book that this this Atomic ecological research leads to the development of the idea of the ecosystem and also leads to the idea, which is really important in ecological restoration today, that ecosystems can be damaged beyond a point 
can be damaged to such an extent that they can no longer repair themselves. The idea of a threshold of reversibility. So in doing this archival research, I was struck by how in the early 20th century, scientists and land managers generally thought about human-caused environmental harm as reversible. The idea was that if you stopped hunting or stopped plowing or stopped forest, stopped um, cutting down trees for a while, that the what we now call an ecosystem would heal itself with time. And there was debate as to how long that would take, whether that was that would, that would take a decade or a century, right? But it was still a an imaginable time frame. And this really shifts with the rise of atomic weapons, where suddenly scientists tasked with imagining World War III start to imagine that there's types of environmental change that could so damage an ecosystem that that ecosystem wouldn't be able to repair itself and that it would require human intervention in order to to be repaired. And so we see this, this slippage in the 1960s when this research is really taking, this atomic ecological research is really taking off between thinking of disturbance in terms of nuclear weapons, disturbance in terms of persistent pollution, disturbance in terms of logging, disturbance in terms of other anthropogenic impacts. And ultimately that leads us to the 1980s when climate change starts to be framed by ecologists as a disturbance in this kind of longer history of ecological research, thinking specifically about disturbances. Well, there was, as you mentioned, a lot of research going on during the 50s and 60s um, funded by the U.S. government. And a lot of it was truly unethical, like <laughs> bombing these islands and, and relocating the natives, the native people who had lived on the islands. Um, but I do want to ask you, like, what do you think that they got right? Um, even though a lot of their methods were questionable, like what was, um, what did they get right when it comes to ecology? I, I don't, I would say that the the nuclear violence that the U.S. government enacted in on the Bikini and Inuitak atolls is indefensible. The some of the a lot of the ecologists that were involved in this work saw themselves as doing good as as. They, they kind of imagined that they themselves had no agency to change the practices of the military and that what they could do was to document the ecological effects. And despite seeing the devastation to both the villages and the ecosystems that they were visiting in the in the Marshall Islands, a lot of ecologists still were really optimistic about nuclear technologies. And this is something that really surprised, really surprised me in the archives. Um, so one example that I look at in the book is the case of Lauren Donaldson, who is a fisheries biologist at the University of Washington, 
who was contracted to go to the Marshall Islands multiple times and document the effect of nuclear weapons on aquatic species. And he came to believe that atomic technology was going to be a, a, a great tool for restoration. And in the laboratory uh, that he worked at in Seattle, he used radioisotopes to induce mutations in salmon fry to try and select for salmon that could better survive in industrialized rivers. And so here's an example of someone, you know, today there's a number of scientists working to try and breed species that are better matched to the environmental conditions, the projected environmental conditions under climate change. And one of the most kind of famous examples of that is uh, scientists who are working to breed coral that is resistant to bleaching and then introduce that into the Great Barrier Reef, for example. Um, but there's a precedent for this type of really interventionist work where scientists are, are using emerging technologies to try and breed species that have new attributes with the hopes that they will be able to survive in a human altered world. And I think another interesting aspect of the atomic ecological work is that some of the fundamental ideas that are used to fight against environmental degradation, like the ecosystem concept, emerged from this environmental violence. And so the ecosystem concept is being used by Marshall Islanders today in court to try and get justice from the U.S. government. Right. And so there's this 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 interweaving of these of these ideas that as a historian, I find really interesting. And as and, and as an environmentalist, I'm hoping people will will that that this will inspire people to think about how to design future restoration interventions in a way that is more just and that attends to the impact of ecological restoration on the people that live in the environments that are being studied or restored. Hmm. Mm -hmm. So another really interesting part of your book that, that I didn't know about until reading it um, was that there was sort of a clear point in time when the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service changed their um, management goals from killing predators to um, stewarding native species. And that was in the 1960s. Could you talk about what brought about that change? So the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service shifts very unevenly and very suddenly in the 1960s from essentially a predator killing service to the government agency that is tasked with restoring predators, some of the same and, and other endangered species. But they're the people working together in the same you know, departments within the Fish and Wildlife Service 
have to pivot from, from researching how to most efficiently and effectively kill wolves and coyotes, for example, to doing research on what remaining population structures look like and what are the best methods for captive breeding and reintroduction of species like wolves. And so uh, in, the, in, the, in the other histories of the Endangered Species Act have focused on the kind of legislative history of the Endangered Species Act. And I take a different approach in the book. I tell the history of the Endangered Species Act as a management history and a history of, of regulation rather than legislation. And I, I argue that this new mandate coming from the Endangered Species Act to protect endangered species leads to a, a necessity for a new type of research and leads to the kind of professionalization of restoration ecology. Cool. And, and so we're in like the 1970s when that's happening, right? The, the ESA passed, was it first? It was earlier than 1973 first, right? 1973 was like a second iteration. It was it was more like a third or a fourth iteration, but yes, yes, the there was a an, a, a, an endangered species act um, in 1966, in 1970, in 1973. The 1973 act is considered by far the most wide ranging and powerful environmental law that has ever been passed in in the United States. Hmm. And so at this point, um, we're up to around like the late 1970s, um, the U.S. government's role in land management is really starting to to take the shape that we know of it today, which is as much more of a regulatory agency that's concerned with like the environment um, than it was in the early um, 20th century when it was more focused on development. And so in the night, I think this was in the 1980s, um, there's this conversation in the book that you include, I think, kind of word for word um, between Starker Leopold, who's Aldo Leopold's son. Most conservation nerds will know who that is. <laughs> and and Starker is speaking to some government land managers. I can't remember which agency they work for. But um, they're talking about this concept of managing landscapes as Native Americans did and like recreating the impacts that the Native Americans had on landscape by burning landscape and and hunting on these landscapes and they're sort of facing this this conundrum of like how do we manage <laughs> can we actually manage this landscape exactly as it was um like before colonization and i think that it it gets at this really interesting tension in your book about like what does restoration even mean what counts as restoration like what standard are we restoring to and I'm curious, how would you say that has changed over the years since restoration really got going um, to to today? So when I began the project, I one of the questions I was most interested in was how did the idea of restoring to a historical baseline emerge? And I expected that that history would extend back to the, at least the early 20th century. And it was very surprising to me to realize that early restorationists were not so concerned with historical fidelity. They did often care about 
certain species that we would now call native species, right? So there was some sense of historical ecosystem, but but they weren't trying to reconstruct a picture of what the landscape looked like in the past, whether that was the 19th century or um, a pre-colonial baseline. It really wasn't until the 1960s that ecologists started advocating for a pre-colonial baseline for restoration. And the, the moment that you point to in the book is a conversation between Starker Leopold and a National Park Service manager. And they're arguing over the or they're arguing over whether or not the National Park Service should institute simulated burns in Western landscapes. And this is something that, of course, is done um, across federal agencies today. But at the time, the debate was over whether deciding to burn a landscape was putting too much human decision-making and agency into the mix. The National Park Service was comfortable with allowing lightning strike fires to continue, but that was, they, they framed that as a, a quote-unquote natural fire. And many National Park Service managers were much less comfortable with the idea of intentionally lighting a fire, especially because for the majority of their careers, they were tasked with putting out forest fires. And so suddenly there's this paradigm shift where some, a handful of ecologists and land managers were arguing that actually species are adapted to fire regimes in the West and that that federal agencies should be doing this sort of restoration work to kind of restore a, a more uh, natural or traditional fire regime. And so they, uh, Starker and this National Park Service employee go back and forth um, in, the, in the excerpt I have in the book about the um, whether, whether or not prescribed burns are an arbitrary decision or whether they're an ecologically wise decision. Um, there were other metrics besides a historical baseline for restoration that restorationists were thinking about, including what we would call today ecosystem functioning. Just the, the idea that there was a, a that there were multiple interconnections between species that an area was retaining stormwater or buffering a coast from hurricane impact or purifying water for human consumption. A lot of these ideas about ecosystem services and ecosystem functions that we think of as a very recent, uh, very recent goal of restoration and conservation actually have deeper roots in the history of restoration than historical fidelity does. Hmm. So I'm curious about your own opinion on what constitutes as wild and whether you would say there actually are any truly wild places left in the United States, at least today, or the world. <laughs> I think of wildness as a 
continuum. And I certainly think that there are wilder places that still exist in the United States and the world. But if we take wild to mean disconnected from human activity and human influence, then I would say, no, there's no wild places on earth because climate change is impacting all places on earth. Persistent pollutants are impacting all places on earth and people live everywhere and travel to everywhere. But I don't think that that definition of wild is a particularly useful one. And so in the book, I'm looking to think about wildness in a more nuanced way and to think about the thriving and autonomy of other than human species. And to think about ways in which humans can intervene in ecosystems and landscapes in order to promote the lives of other species and with the intention of helping other species. And I don't think that we should think of this work, this restoration work, as diminishing the wildness of other species. And so I am perhaps in contrast to, to some conservationists and restorationists, I am optimistic about intervening in species trajectories and believe that there are a lot of people who, given the opportunity, would choose to do more to try and help other species survive. Right. And for people who um, read the book, they'll see that there's, of course, caveats to um, what interventions are successful or what makes a successful intervention. And um, I think there it there's a lot um, to explore there. I didn't really realize how sort of nascent the restoration, uh, I guess, movement and in industry still is. Like it just seems like they're still getting so many things wrong, which I will ask you about <laughs> in a second. But I want to make sure that we get to the um, Disney Wetlands Preserve. You spend some time talking about that in the mm-hmm. latter part of the book. Um, that was sort of a, in a lot of ways, a sea change moment. And the Disney Wetland Preserve is this restored landscape that um, I think the, the Nature Conservancy manages um, that the that Walt Disney or the Disney Corporation funded um, in exchange for being able to build Disney World in Orlando. They had to sort of, under law, under the Clean Water Act, establish this preserve. And could you explain why that was so important and how it's changed the course of restoration? Yes. So the Disney Wilderness Preserve was built in order to compensate for a build-out of Walt Disney World, and uh, which uh, a lot of which was parking lot and, and condos. And unlike when Walt Disney World was built um, earlier in the, in the 20th century, by the time they were expanding in the 1980s, they were required under the Clean Water Act, uh, either to avoid wetlands damage or to compensate for it if they were damaging wetlands. And they were 
of course, damaging wetlands by paving over them entirely. And typically in the early years of the Clean Water Act, a developer would compensate for harm to wetlands by doing restoration on site. What was different about the Disney Wilderness Preserve is that it was off-site. So this is a preserve that is about 15 miles south of Walt Disney World. And this agreement that Walt Disney World brokered with the Nature Conservancy and the Florida Environmental Agency and, 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 and federal agencies as well was that Disney World would donate money to restore a wetland offsite. And this is what is now called offsite mitigation. And perhaps the best known example that we live with today of offsite mitigation is carbon offsetting. So if you've taken a, a flight, you've probably been asked whether you want to purchase carbon offsets for your in order to offset your, car your carbon emissions from the flight. I argue in the book that this very idea that environmental harm at one site can be offset with environmental care at a second site emerges from the Disney Wilderness Preserve um, agreement. And this agreement created a, a way to think about kind of consolidating care and creating a market for ecosystem restoration. And so now wetlands mitigation banks are a common thing across the United States. Almost always, if a developer is, is impacting a wetland, they will choose to contribute, to buy credits from a wetland mitigation bank. It's extremely rare that a developer would be doing their own restoration on site. Um, and so environmental organizations like the Nature Conservancy were very much in favor of these sorts of arrangements because it meant more conservation funding and it meant more control over those landscapes. But I argue that the, the trouble with offsite mitigation is twofold. First is that it's reconfiguring the, the distribution of ecosystems, both at a regional scale and at a, at a global scale as well. So wetlands are being moved and consolidated. And ecologists at first thought of that as a good thing because a, a large wetland can support more, generally speaking, can support more species than a small wetland. But when you consolidate like that, you're not necessarily recreating the same wetland type that was lost. And so you might not be restoring the same species that were, were harmed in the first place. And there's just very little data about who, which communities are losing wetlands and which communities are gaining wetlands. Um, and we can imagine from the, what we know from the environmental justice literature in the United States, that it is likely the case that wealthier communities and whiter communities are gaining wetlands, whereas other as communities of color or poorer communities are losing wetlands. And this, of course, is a, a problem at the international scale as well, when you think about the carbon offsetting market, where 
countries in the global north are paying countries in the global south in order to sequester carbon and therefore might be dispossessing people from their land in the case of forestry-based carbon offsets um, or might be constraining economic development. Yeah, I and my colleagues at the Center for Western Priorities, I would say, are all pretty skeptical of carbon offsets. Um, And your book contained some really shocking examples of just how harmful that um, industry can be. Um, So definitely encourage people to go listen to or go read it, excuse me, um, because it is just really eye-opening. So for my last question, I want to just ask you, and I, I intimated towards this earlier, but um, what do you think restoration work today gets right and what does it get wrong? Where could it be better? I think that there's a lot of exciting work happening right now in ecological restoration at the intersection of environmental care and social justice. And it's really what I, it is, I guess that is what I both would say that restoration has historically gotten wrong in the past and also what it it stands to get right in the future is that historically, you know, to, to, to go back to the example that I, um, that I opened the book with in chapter one of the American Bison Society, the first bison reserves in the United States were established on Indian reservation land that the federal government was systematically dismantling in order to erode tribal sovereignty. And bison restoration really was more about keeping land under the control of white settlers than it was about the bison themselves. The story comes full circle and I close the book with the example of just last year, the National Bison Range, which was the the second site established by the American Bison Society, was given back to the management control of the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes who are now collaborating with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to do that transfer both of bison management, but also of control of the land. And so I think there are a lot of people within conservation and restoration thinking about how restoration projects can facilitate tribal sovereignty, for example, rather than hindering it or being part of settler colonialism. I think there's also just interesting work being done with restoration ecologists thinking about how to incorporate principles from environmental justice activists and scholars about distributive justice and procedural justice, asking who is harmed and who is benefits from restoration projects and who gets to make decisions about how, where restoration is done and how restoration is done. Hmm. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for this conversation and for your book. Um, as a person working in conservation, it was so interesting and I just feel like packed with really useful history. So thank you so much, Laura. Thank you for reading. This episode is already pretty long, so we're going to skip our good news segment this week. 
We'll bring it back in the next show, which is about the greater Gila wilderness. Make sure to catch that one when we release it in about two weeks. And as always, if you have any recommendations or comments, you can reach us at podcast at westernpriorities.org. Until next time, I'm Kate Gretzinger at the Center for Western Priorities. Thanks for listening.